Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. This week, we explore the blatant assassination attempt on Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the ramifications of this on European politics. We also look at the disastrous water situation in Crimea, with Russia trying to sue Ukraine over alleged responsibility for the crisis. This and more on Sakhodonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny is being treated in a hospital in Berlin after becoming ill on a flight. Experts believe he was poisoned by a toxin from a family of substances that includes drugs for Alzheimer's disease, insecticides, as well as the most toxic known chemical weapons, nerve agents. But before we jump into that, I think we should look into the background of Navalny and the context as to why this has happened to him. So Navalny was born on the 4th of June 1976 and grew up in the town of Obninsk, about 100 kilometers southwest from Moscow. Now, a fun fact is that Navalny is technically half Ukrainian because his dad was born in Kievska Oblast and he would spend his summers in Ukraine. And so he's fl- uh, pretty proficient in his Ukrainian. He was a busy man, so he graduated with a law degree from the People's Friendship University of Russia in 1998, which I think is a great name for a university. What do you reckon? Are they friendly? (laughs) (laughs) He then went on to study securities at the Finance University under the government of the Russian Federation. And in 2010, he went on to win a scholarship at the Yale World Fellows Program. In 2008, he then became a shareholder activist in many Russian gas and oil companies. So kind of a link to our Magnitsky thing, a link to our previous Magnitsky story there. And he tried to expose corruption in these companies and improve practices. And his first kind of brush with politics came in 2011 when Moscow erupted in protests over the parliamentary elections that took place, which many saw as corrupt because Putin's party, United Russia, won a majority of seats. However, according to exit polls, they should have lost their majority. Navalny was arrested during these protests and Alexei Venediktov, who was the editor of the Echo of Moscow radio station, said that Putin and the Kremlin made a big mistake by arresting Navalny because he went from being an online activist into an offline activist and many people in mainstream Russian media found out about who he was. It makes you wonder, I guess, you know, if, if that's what got him started, this provocation or this attempt on his life must make it even more resolve about his, you know, his aim to remain opposition leader and potentially, you know, win an election in Russia where, you know, it's quite difficult. But I think the other thing that's really important to talk about in this story is that um, everyone's kind of, I think most lay people now that don't even follow events in Eastern Europe are pretty consciously aware of the fact that Russia seems to be trying to do uh, FSB slash KGB style assassination attempts with nerve agents um so and certainly the whole idea of novichok's becoming a calling card for the kremlin uh in terms of uh really blatant uh, attempts on people's lives is, is quite a fascinating reality we're living in i think if we said even 10 15 years ago um in the beginning of the 21st century that countries would be bold enough to start doing these kind of blatant assassination attempts on potentially their citizens whether they were abroad or otherwise um, and, you know, even things like uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, Salman with um, what happened 
uh, with Khashoggi, um, you know, these sort of attempts, these these attempts or successful attempts, are kind of showing a very big shift in the way justice is administered globally, and it's quite scary. So even the BBC, they called him the only real Russian opposition leader to emerge during that period. So I think that was a pretty like big endorsement from like the West. And then in 2013, he kind of entered the f- the political fray even further when he attempted to run for mayor of Moscow. And these were the first elections held for the position since 2004. And he won 27.24% and he exceeded a lot of expectations. Wait, why did it take so long to have elections? So when Putin came to power, he rewrote the Russian constitution and said that all governors were appointed by the president on the advice of the state Duma and the mayor of Moscow is considered a governor because Moscow, like Kiev, is a separate administrative region. Ah, okay. Um, And then in 2016, he announced that he was planning to run for president in the 2018 elections. And as soon as he announced that, suddenly all these corruption cases appeared from nowhere and he was eventually convicted of one in 2017, which formally barred him from running. And since then, he's just stayed, he stayed active in opposition uh, politics. And he started doing a lot of YouTube blogs exposing Russian corruption. So I think he showed off Dmitry Medvedev's, uh, the former prime minister of Russia, his duchess. He showed Putin's dacha in Sochi, which looks more like a Tsarist palace than a dacha. So I think that kind of brings us to the state now. Yes, yeah, so this takes us to um, his actual poisoning and what happened to him. So, on the 20th of August, Navalny took a flight and he was headed from Tomsk to Moscow, except during this flight he fell ill and he was forced, well, the plane was forced to make an emergency landing in Omsk. Um, so, they took him to the hospital there in Omsk and he was being treated and then from there he was ended up being transferred to Germany or to Berlin specifically and that's where he currently is um, receiving treatment still. Wasn't there a lot of to and fro in trying to get him out of Russia? There was a, um, they were trying to actually block him from leaving for quite some time. Um, I think it was one whole day, I believe, before they actually managed to approve of him leaving. Yeah, I'm not surprised, honestly, with that. Because <laughs> I think the whole reason for like... Uh, preventing him from leaving was that even if he like did survive he, i think it was just to make it harder so that the poisoning would have sort of weared off like weared off and by the time he would have got there it would have been gone so like they wouldn't be able to detect it i think this is what they were well aiming for sounds like probably their plan but it didn't work which i'll get to later but um <clears throat> during this flight his condition it was reported that his condition changed dramatically he fell ill like instantly and there was an instagram video that was made um by another passenger on the plane and you can hear him in this video he's like pretty much screaming in the background and groaning and apparently what happened was he vomited first and then he started saying you know that he was in pain he was in pain and you see like um the flight crew and these other responders just like kind of rushing towards him because that's how quickly his uh, situation changed. <clears throat> After he was transferred to Germany, um, the German government, once they did all these tests on him, they announced that they had unequivocal evidence that he was poisoned uh, with Novichok, which is the Soviet-invented nerve agent, which goes back to what you were saying, Justin, it's just that blatant. And also what you said on three, there's a good chance they were trying to keep him there so that this poison or this nerve agent wouldn't be traced however the german government was able to confirm that it was still in his system and that's what he was poisoned with so how was he poisoned so it's believed that he was poisoned through a cup of black tea that he drank while he was at the airport and it was his assistant or his secretary said that he had only uh, taken one sip of the tea which is one of the things that most likely 
you know, helped save his life because it wasn't able to get completely in his system between that and the vomiting. That's probably what saved him. And I'll talk a little more later about how um, Novotrok works and exactly why in recent cases, um, you know, we have these survivors. Well, there's been two situations where people have survived from it. I was going to say, he's probably never going to buy tea again. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Just... But it is it is quite scary. I mean, everyone, I'm sure, a lot of people have seen the memes, you know, about not drinking tea from Putin and, and the, the different ones, polonium tea or whatever yeah. else it would be. You know, I, I just think it's it's amazing that, you know, the, it's almost a signature calling card. And, and, and there is a question to be said about how much of that is on purpose too, because obviously when you make an example, when you, when you show something blatantly as, as the Kremlin, Kremlin saying, okay, well, we're going to do this and this is what we're going to do. And if you talk or if you step out of line, this is what will happen to you. I think there is, there is a bit of a propaganda element actually being quite affr- uh, overt with this sort of thing rather than being um, covert. You know, covert you and know. that kind of reminds me of, um, like you mentioned before, Khashoggi, how that was so brutal and was, yeah, basically sending a message. It was, yeah, it was. But I think, I think the other thing that's very important here, and I think that's probably why we've seen such a strong, I mean, not that we didn't see a strong response from the UK government, um, but I would like to have seen a stronger response from the UK government with those particular cases. However, I mean, look, that was probably looking at former agents. You know, it was more like intelligence, you know, intelligence agents being affected. Oh, that makes it right. But, but this is actually more fair game. Well, perhaps more fair game. But I think the overt nature of this being a direct political rival, you know, being, um, I guess, yeah, maybe a political rival who can't run. But I mean, stranger things have happened in Eastern European countries around changing rules around those sort of things. But someone who is a significant rival to Putin basically being attacked in this manner. And I guess they probably were hoping it would never that he wouldn't be able to leave the country and it would be explained away however they want to explain it away. Um, and so I think that's the other part that's quite scary is that it's, it's, a, it's an escalation in terms of the type of people who are being um, oblate, overtly targeted in this way. Yes. Yeah, so what is this nerve agent uh, Novotrok that they've used? It's actually it was in the media a couple of years ago. It's the same nerve agent that was used, used in 2018 on the former Russian spy Serhii Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury in the UK. This was originally developed in the Soviet Union and it was developed between the 70s and the 90s. Now, you, you stand, I know you have a whole podcast you've listened to on uh, Soviet biochemicals. Can you give in some more information on exactly what this plan was that they developed it under? So, it's called Biopropiat. Um, so, what's interesting is, uh, like, obviously, chemical weapons uh, have been outlawed by uh, you know, international conventions for quite a long time. But there was uh, work that was happening in secret, um, definitely in the 80s, on both 70s sides, and 80s. And on, yeah, arguably on both sides, um, though obviously conclusively proven uh, in the former Soviet Union. And so these, these nerve agents were basically uh, developed under, I guess, a blanket of something called bioappropriate. And the idea was that those labs were designed for you know, prevention of you know, or you know, countering biological weapons, defensive purposes, not offensive. But obviously they were... Offensively, the weapons program was probably the largest in history um, in terms of bio, bio and chemical weapons. Yeah, so the um, the actual nerve agent itself, it's part of a group um, of chemicals called organophosphorus. And these chemicals, are, they're similar to pesticides and they kill in different ways. So, for example, in pesticides, it specifically targets enzymes in insects as opposed to 
humans and mammals, whereas these nerve agents that they've made now specifically target enzymes in um, human bodies. So if it actually um, inhibits the vital nerve functions by attacking these enzymes, and that's what ends up killing um, the the person because you know the, the parts of their body stop functioning because the nerves can't send signals anymore. But I think as well, Nathan, you mentioned like the effectiveness of it, um, perhaps being. Uh, questioned in some modern sources because they're saying, well, you know, there's been two attempts now, both of them not technically successful on their intended targets. I know with the Salisbury case, there was a, a unintended casualty that happened where someone did pass away, the third the third person affected. Um, but what the other thing that's probably worth mentioning is that with all these sort of programs where they mass-produced uh, bioweapons, there is actually a bit of an issue that sometimes comes to the fact of shelf life um, because they, they're produced in a certain way there. And so the, the other reasoning behind perhaps the effectiveness could be um, yeah, the age of the, the actual material being used as well. Yeah, that's another possibility. Um, so I, I read an article where it was specifically focused on why the Salisbury attempt on the spy and his daughter f- um, failed and why they recovered as well as why um, Navalny has recovered as well because he's now out of his coma. So the theory behind it is that it is partly to do with the substance itself. However, like Houston mentioned that it did actually kill, there was actually a casualty in the UK as a result of it. Um, the other part of it is that it's also how they've been trying to poison these people. So for example, with uh, in the UK, the, the agent was on their door handle. So when they touched their door handle, it did transfer the agent onto their the palm of their hand, which is a high contact area. So the belief was that as they were touching other things in their house, it spread the contact off their palms to other um, areas there, and that reduced how much got absor- uh, was absorbed into their bloodstream. Secondly, the palm of the hand is actually a part of the body that doesn't absorb much. Uh, compared to other areas of the body. Due to its high contact nature. Yeah, so that's why it not, not enough of it got into their system to kill them. So that's kind of, you could say that's a failure in the method of de- delivery of the, of the nerve agent itself. And that's similar to Navalny as well, because as I mentioned, he only took one sip of his tea and he vomited while he was on his flight. So that's another way that prevented that uh, nerve agent from getting into his body or staying into his body, which is, you know, it's probably saved his life. So if the Russian government continues this method of, you know, trying to assassinate people and, you know, scare people into not opposing Putin. Yeah, it's it's not working so far, but if I, I think if we've kind of figured it out and if journalists have figured it out, they've probably figured it out. And on top of that, this is the only assassination attempts, the high-profile ones that we know failed. We don't know of any others that may have succeeded. So, you know, that's just speculation on these two high-profile cases. So, so the other side of things, I guess these nerve agents are probably the other legacy of of the cold war of the 20th century um in the sense that we all hear about the nuclear weapons and developments of you know bombers and other technologies but there was a very huge industrial complex around obviously preparation of bioweapons and nerve uh, chemical weapons and i think this brings us to how does the poisoning of a russian opposition leader affect ukraine so with navalny being in a german hospital and it being confirmed that he has been poisoned with this nerve agent, the German Chancellor has been uh, notified of this. And now she's under pressure from not only other European countries, but also people within her government and opposition trying to pressure her into making some sort of reaction, not only just with sh- sanctions, but also preventing Nord Stream 2, which is the bypass of gas via the sea between the Nordic countries. 
So I think this goes into Russia's... If they do sanction Nord Stream 2, it will hit Russia's geopolitical ambitions quite heavily because the whole point of building this pipeline from Russia to Germany via the Baltic Sea was to avoid Ukraine. And if they could avoid pumping gas through Ukraine, that it'd be a lot easier for Russia to pressure Ukraine because at the moment they have to pump gas through Ukraine and pay money to Ukraine to do so. And it's been a long-term goal of Russia to either gain control of these pipelines or to remove them from the picture. Yeah, so some notable uh, political figures have come out against the completion of Nord Stream 2. For example, the head of the German Foreign Affairs Committee has said that we must pursue hard politics. We must respond with the only language Putin understands, that is gas sales. Because of Russia's economy linked so heavily with the gas industry, this will put a significant dent in their economy. And the current chairman of the British Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Committee has uh, stated that the pattern of the behaviour that we've seen come out of the Kremlin over the last 20 years is completely clear. From murdering opposition politicians, Boris Nemtsov, on the bridge overlooking the Kremlin, to the attempted murder of the Prime Minister of Montenegro, to the use of Novichok in Salisbury. It's impossible not to add one and one and make out two out of this. It's completely clear. Yeah, so even though Merkel herself is, you know, resistant to trying to link this to um, to the Nord Stream 2 project because she does, you know, want that still to go through. Yeah, she I've views looked- it as a, not as a geopolitical, but more as an economic... Uh, Necessity. Yes. But you can see that she's getting tremendous pressure from other people in her government because this is so blatant and they're starting to realise that Russia is actually a threat and they need to start taking action against you know, the country in ways that are actually going to get them to actually change their course because, you know, you're going to start attacking their money and their revenue. Makes me think exactly how much more, I know Russia's economy is massive, but like they lost that, I think it was like a $500 trillion deal with um, ExxonMobil to drill in the seas above Russia um, because of the sanctions that were put on it when they annexed Crimea. And now there's these, you know, they, they might lose Nord Stream 2 and hope this, I, th- I think this is actually a good strategy if political leaders like Merkel actually do the right thing. Yeah, and I think, Andrew, what you're saying is true. Like the whole idea that oh, this might be perceived as a European economic issue, not a geopolitical one, kind of then also deprioritizes the idea of Ukraine ever really integrating into the European Union. I mean... Because arguably, if that was to happen, then you know the, the 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 gas lines that run through Ukraine would then be part of Europe, and you know it's important to keep those lines available um, for future use as well. Yeah. So just to fix something, that ExxonMobil deal with Russia was five hundred billion, not five hundred trillion. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I want to mention was that there's only that little stretch left to the German uh, port where it's meant to connect up to. Now. One thing uh, that the OSA building via a different company, still owned by Gazprom, is another set of pipelines going through Germany and into the Czech Republic. And one of the issues that can arise from this, from Gazprom's uh, view, is that if Nord Stream 2 is cancelled, then these pipelines are worthless because they're not going to connect to their own system. And a lot of people can view this as that uh, as an advantage to Germany because they've gotten this this gas pipeline and not have to take Russian gas, but rather from either Norway or American LPG or from other countries as well. So they've pretty much made Gazprom pay for all this infrastructure and pretty much bar them from using it. I think a reflection of how seriously uh, the global community is looking at these actions. The Australian government has come out this week and condemned 
the attacks on the Vardini um, quite strongly, uh, and I think we'll only see more and more uh, nations follow suit. So up until 2014, the North Crimean Canal, a 402-kilometre canal connecting the arid north of the peninsula of Crimea to the Dnipro River in Ukraine, supplied over 80% of the peninsula's fresh water. But in response to uh, Russia gaining control over the peninsula, Kyiv cut off water shutting down this canal and forcing the region to rely on its natural underground freshwater reserves and placing more importance on rain and snowmelt. So as a result, uh, Crimea is now facing severe water shortages, triggering migration from the arid areas in the north and east, areas which are in danger of becoming deserts. Uh, those in agricultural affairs in the Moscow government say that in 2019, the Crimean economy was losing 14 billion rubles or 180 million US dollars a year uh, due to the lack of water uh, because, um, you know, uh, rice crops, uh, soybeans, all the other things that they sort of like farmed until they obviously started dying because they didn't have yeah, enough water Yeah, too much anymore. water consumption like per plant, really. So this is a really important issue on two political fronts. On one hand, holding back this water is Kyiv's last card that it holds to leverage against Russia. But on the other hand, failing to supply water would lead to a humanitarian catastrophe. And, you know, Ukraine doesn't want to be the one that led to a catastrophe of this kind. Uh, it's also really important to note that um, Russia has militarised the peninsula, which means that they're using a lot of water and uh, exhausting the water supply there, further exacerbating yeah, the issue. I think as well, I mean, this comes back to the topic we had just before, uh, where we were looking at how the idea of Nord Stream uh, really destroying Ukraine's political leverage around obviously being a transit country for Russian gas. Uh, and, you know, if we look back at those situations uh, when there was the disputes around, you know, debt for Russian gas being purchased or Ukrainian gas that was purchased, you know, you, Russia had no problems charging through the nose or cutting off supply or doing all these sort of things to, to resolve their own political aims. And, you know, perhaps there needs to be a balance struck for Ukraine in this situation where, yeah, look, don't deny the humanitarian aspect, but, you know, there's probably a way to pay, <laughs> pay for Russia to pay through the nose for it, perhaps. So, uh, with this whole humanitarian issue that Russia is claiming, um, it's trying to force this image and propaganda that Ukraine is at fault rather than Russia. Now, Russia has lodged a complaint to the United Nations General Assembly in context that Ukraine is not providing water to Crimea. Now, this is the same General Assembly that Russia has again and again flouted the General Assembly's resolutions. So Russia has tried to put a, twi a twist on it, saying that Ukraine has uh, is preventing Crimea from receiving water. And the main reason that Russia wants this water is so that they can further militarize and uh, introduce more armed forces into the region and militarizing the whole peninsula. Uh, so I wanted to throw a question out to you guys. Does the responsibility fall on Kyiv to supply the water to Crimea or to Moscow? So according to the Geneva Convention, Russia as the occupying state bears the full responsibility for what happens on the occupied, occupied territory and for all such requirements, water and food are also included. 
Now, like, you know, you look at it on one side, it looks pretty bad on Kane's part because they maintain that, you know, uh, Crimea is only temporarily occupied you know eventually ukraine will get it back and you know Kiev still cares about the people on the peninsula yeah and then the legal argument is that you know it's russian territory it's their problem deal with it and um i think this brings us to two interesting points so one is civil um polls in ukraine show that the majority of society is against providing water to crimea and every time it's brought up as an idea it's always shut down by the public and then the other important point to highlight is that the um, the Ukrainian ministry that's responsible for the northern Crimean Canal has said that even if Ukraine wanted to supply water to Crimea, it would take years to fix the canal because no one's looked after it since the annexation. Yeah, like there's photos of the canal in Crimea where it's just, it's all grass that you can't even see the concrete underneath it. There's trees coming out. So even if water was to be um, provided again, it's pretty much completely impossible to do it like straight away. It'd take like years to clear it out. Well, haven't they turned it into a garbage dump? Pretty much, yeah. This has just become a common place to dump stuff now. Yeah, and I think we all need to remember that uh, Russia annexed Crimea in an aggressive fashion with no real reasoning aside from wanting the strategic advantage and having an imperialistic first for power and spreading their territory. So they had to build a bridge to, to access land-wise for you know, great expense to themselves. And I think the same can be said for any types of supply of water and things like that. I mean, the other side of the coin is Ukraine did lose a huge amount of its fleet in terms of its ships, uh, a lot of its resources in the fleet area. And everything else, all the money that's been invested in that region from an economic tourism uh, perspective has all been lost to Ukraine. So I don't know if you know, Russia can really cry poor if they're the ones being aggressive and saying that they want to be this imperialistic nation. And if they've already paid to reconfigure Crimea's electricity grid, like it shouldn't be too hard for them to build a pipeline for water. So I was going to say, um, Brianna, I know how you mentioned there was like two sides, mm. but I actually think there's a third one as well. And that is long term. What does this do for um, Ukraine when they get it back? And with the bridge that's being built, with the electricity grid, with pumping water into it, yes, it's Russia putting money into it, but that's them investing in it. So when it goes back to Ukraine, there's going to be Russian-based investment in the region already. And I think that's the part that's going to be difficult to undo. I read an article recently where it talked about how the Baltic states have actually been trying to reconfigure their electrical grids because the central control of their main grids is actually in Moscow. So at any time, Moscow can shut off power to countries like um, Estonia and other places like that. So I think long-term, having Crimea under that kind of influence and that kind of uh, pressure from Russia, I think that's going to be detrimental. And if they start investing water into the region, then trying to get water out of that route, Russian water out of that region, and trying to have Ukraine's water supply come back in, I think that's going to cause problems, especially when they're going to try and reunify the country and trying to get those people who are now... Well, let's face it, they are now, you know, kids are being schooled in Russian, Russia, in Russian over there. And there's, you know, a cultural transition that is that they are trying to do to transition it into a Russian, uh, an ethnic Russian uh, territory and trying to undo that, especially when so much of the um, economics relies on Russia. I think that's going to be a problem later down the track. Yeah, but I think it's a delicate dance because, yeah, Ukraine can't... Uh 
just sort of willing, like, I guess, roll over and provide legitimacy to the occupation of Crimea either. So by doing that kind of supply and having that commercial relationship with an occupied uh, Crimea is basically in some ways legitimizing that that's the, the status quo and, and further advancing a lot of the, you know, the debates that are happening internationally about how that region is recognized anyway. Um, Ukraine doesn't even have an, uh, an international obligation to help maintain Crimea because in the Geneva Convention, it specifically states that Russia as the occupying state bears the full responsibility for all that happens on the occupied territory and for all such requirements, water and food are included. I agree, um, Andre, but I think where Nathan was trying to go as well was the hearts and minds aspect, you know, the idea that for the people that are living in this you know, disrupted territory, um, and I guess I'm, I'm siding on that devil's advocacy a little bit from Nathan's side, there is there is a role of, you know, if the provider and the supplier of everything is Russia and Ukraine turns their, their, fa you know, their face away from the problem, it might make it more difficult to ever reintegrate the the, the area into a, uh, you know, a full united Ukraine. So I think yeah, maybe there is some kind of balance. Maybe there's a lesson to be learned from the way Russia managed gas through Ukraine. Maybe Ukraine could provide the water, but do so in a way that's quite you know, detrimental economically and untenable economically for Russia. So it means Ukraine gets something out of it. And perhaps, you know, Ukraine can leverage, you know, at different times in the relationship, they can still leverage it by cutting the supply off when they disagree with something that Russia is doing. I think that's the stronger approach to take because that's what, that's the power that Russia has over other countries. And I think that's what Ukraine should try and have over the territory because if, if Ukraine is supplying the water to well, let's face it, you know, the troops that are down there, Russian troops, and they can shut it off at any time. That's the kind of leverage you want. Uh, and, you know, at, at the moment, I, I didn't even know about the power grid being uh, linked back. And that's kind of furthering that like, rus Russification of the, you know, power grids in the, the in Eastern Europe. In general, like Crimea, I'm pretty sure is one of the most heavily subsidized Russian regions of like in the Russian Federation. And so a lot of other like poorer, like traditionally poor Russian regions are quite angry that all this money is being pumped into Crimea because they kind of see it as like, you know, like a white elephant. It's kind of Putin's dream project and it's sucking in all this money. But then the other thing on Ukraine's side is that it has to play a very delicate dance in when it comes to dealing with Donbass and Crimea is in that um, Ukrainian veterans are quite highly organized and anything that upsets them can rock the political establishment of Ukraine, which is what happens every time they suggest compromises that threaten Ukraine's sovereignty. And I think that's why the dance is so delicate. You raise a very important point, Alexa, that as much as you may want to, you know, be the, hum you know, the humanitarian with this sort of situation, there's a current war that's happening in eastern Ukraine with the same person who has occupied Crimea, with the same country. It, there's there's a lot of complexity there to actually start going down the road of some kind of normalized relation not only does it set the precedent like we said before of you know this is actually a russian territory but it also ignores the fact that there is an active war and if there's an active war as andre's mentioned you know an occupying force has the responsibility for everything that happens on their occupied territory therefore it is russia's problem ultimately at the moment um and it could get very confusing if ukraine on one hand is, you know, trying to actively fight a war and on the other side is, you know, normalising the situation in Crimea. So if we take like a theoretical exploration, let's say um, then, you know, in the future, Ukraine gets Crimea back. How does Ukraine go about trying to re-establish the economic ties 
back into Ukraine as opposed to economic ties that they've developed, that Crimea has developed with Russia over this period. Well, Ukraine's already done it once in the 1950s, so it shouldn't be too hard and, for them to and, do it again. And arguably did it again in 1991. Yeah. It wasn't a foregone conclusion. I mean, it was part of the territory of Ukraine, but it wasn't, you know, there's always been a semi-autonomous you know, government. That's yeah, and they tried to break away in the early 90s, so Ukraine's yeah. already done it twice now. Yeah. True, but um, Putin wasn't in power. Yeah, and but I the, str- like- the Russian strategy's been there since 91. Yeah, but I feel like the Russian strategy is more aggressive this time with Putin. And he's willing to play dirty as opposed to other Russian leaders or Soviet leaders if we're talking about the 50s. I think it was just because Ukraine was in a stronger position in 91. But like in the early 90s, yeah. which is why they couldn't get away with it like they did in other Soviet republics. And is it actually as complicated? I mean, I, obviously we can't put ourselves in the position of Crimeans that are experiencing this or Ukrainians who live in Crimea or or Russians who live in Crimea, for that matter. But, I mean, surely if your conditions were better before the occupying forces arrived, I don't know if you'd blame the original government that was your controller who no longer has any control over your Your life for the problems that exist. I mean, it's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit difficult. It's like if, you know, some country was, like Tasmania was annexed from Australia by someone and Australians provide water and power. I think I think there's you know there's a lot of I'm sure there's a hundred colonial examples of where you know the the other power turned their back on the country or the the territory. Well, I, and I think the clear example to look at in the future is East and West Germany because mm. they were two comp- like they were one country separated, had two different systems, and now they've more or less unified on a on an economic level. So. Ukraine will just have to replicate the same thing with Donbass and Crimea. But I think on a more um, serious and a more aggressive tactic compared to what Germany had to do, I think because of how close we are to Russia and Moscow and how forceful Putin is, I think Ukraine needs to be much more aggressive in uh, reintegrating in reintegrating Donbass and Krem uh, compared to what Germany had because they were so far away. I think they had less interf- uh, interference in a sense. And they went directly under the USSR as a sense that they had a little bit more control, but uh, by how much? Control, but how much? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah by how much? I think, I think the reunification of Germany certainly was a watershed moment of the 20th century. And I think the fact that that country could become an economic powerhouse of Europe um, well after all that kind of cost of that reintegration is amazing. But I think we just, I think the thing we can distinguish, and I was just trying to think of another world modern example, um, and the examples we talk about are really more about two countries that are maybe split, or a country that might be split. So let's look at North and South Korea as an example, as a hypothetical, right? If South Korea was refusing to provide water for North Korea because of political differences, yes, you could probably argue there's a humanitarian um, higher ground of actually providing that water and then trying to still resolve a dispute. I think the challenge here is there's a third party. This isn't a dispute between a semi-autonomous or you know, split-off independent Crimea with Ukraine um, that's trying to you know, be its own independent country. It's a situation where another another power has come in you know, and tried to take over you know, for, for their own purposes while also actively fighting you know, on, on the other border as well. So I think, there's, I think there's a little bit more complexity there around the home or high ground, but you know, I'm usually on your side, Nathan, <laughs> so I'm not sure. <laughs> would, yeah. would you say that the third power in the Korean War would have been the US? Because I would say they have successfully in South Korea um, transitioned South Korea more towards the West because they've, they've got military bases there and stuff like that. I'm just, I guess the part I'm worried about is that there's well, that well, it's, fracture it's, later so, on. So, well, it's the same as 
for example, the US demanding, you know, that that North Korea provide water for South Korea. You know, I, I just don't see, you know, I, I think I think that this shows the power of the Russian propaganda machine that we're even questioning this because I think in most examples of you know these sort of geopolitics, if you know, um, you know, it's a bit like how we always like the phrase of history is written by the victors, but you know the checks have to be paid by the victors too. If you want to control the territory, you know, you got to pay for it. In the news this week, former chief of the office of the president of Ukraine, Andriy Bohdan, was summoned by the State Bureau of Investigation for an interview. This was done after he gave a controversial interview during which he discussed secret deals between Ukraine and Russia over Crimea and POWs, which contradicted current Ukrainian legislation. The Vohovna Rada has voted not to recognize the results of the recent Belarusian elections held on the 9th of August. Ukraine now joins the EU in not recognizing the results. The Ukrainian parliament also expressed its support for the application of sanctions against the Lukashenko regime. On September 13th, Russia held local elections in occupied Crimea. Ukrainian presidential envoy for the Autonomous Republic of Crimea, Anton Khodinavich, condemned the elections as yet another violation of Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. Ukrainian village team Kolos Kovalivka has written a new chapter in its short history. On the 17th of September, the Ukrainian club faced the Greek team Aris in a Europa League second qualifying round tie. From September 16th to 25th, the annual Rapid Trident military exercise will be held between Ukraine, the US and seven other NATO countries in Western Ukraine. The exercise between Ukraine and the US have now been going for more than 25 years and aims to increase the interoperability between Ukraine and NATO. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more Yuki Life Abroad content.